0: You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a JCast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other JCast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JCastNetwork.org. Good morning, everybody. Man, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's so nice to, to see everybody this morning, to uh, be able to have uh, some coffee and some you. Thank you to the men's club for sponsoring this. Uh, and uh, we may in a few minutes um, have uh, a few of the millionaires come in and join us. But um, um, first of all, I, I just kind of wanted an opportunity to uh, um, to get to schmooze and interact with, uh, with, with, with you all. So I'm, I'm glad... To have that opportunity. Um, but uh, I was sort of uh, uh, thinking that maybe uh, some kind of, you know, formal-ish program would be um, meaningful. Um, and, uh, and so um, i thinking of how to kind of like bridge the divide between um, not having any program at all and having a program that was, you know, sort of too stilted and rigid and formal um, to just kind of do an, an, an open Q&A. Um, uh, any... Uh, um, Jewish questions that uh, you have. Um, I'm uh, happy to share my uh, take on them, my opinions about them. Um, sometimes they might be um, uh, a little idiosyncratic. Um, uh, and uh, also, any question I think is fair game, um, uh, except for uh, synagogue administration. <laughs> so, uh, those questions you can direct to Ben Lewis. Uh, president at Betvell dot org. Um so uh, the floor is yours.
1: Alright, well I have a question that Adam asked me t- to bring to you. And it's <laughs> the way he said it to me was just tell the rabbi this is how I this is how I am when I'm thinking during the services. He noticed he notices that there's a lot of um, what he calls sort of Common circumstance around the person that does the aliyah rather than the person that actually brings Torah. And he said, why is that? And that just was something that he thought of and he was
0: wondering. Yeah, um, that's a great question. So, the, did everybody hear the question? No. Uh, so, the question I would was.
1: Project. <laughs> I'll, I'll just Do okay.
0: uh, you want to project it again or I'll repeat So, the question was, um, it seems like there's a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance, a lot of uh, honor given, a lot of celebration given to the person who recites the blessings over the Torah reading, but not necessarily to the person who's actually doing the reading itself. Why is that? Um, it's a great question. Um, so the first answer I'll give is that there's no reason not to uh, celebrate the person who's uh, who's chanting the Torah. Um <laughs> although, well, I'll get to um, the although in a second. So the, the, um, the short answer is that uh, um, there was a time where that role was actually a dual role. Um, you would recite the blessing if you were the one reading the, uh, from the Torah. Um, and, uh, and over time in Jewish history... Uh, it was discovered that uh, fewer and fewer people had the skill of uh, reading Torah. This isn't a recent phenomenon. This happened in the Middle Ages, right? Um, That uh, um, fewer and fewer people had uh, the capability of reading Torah, but we wanted to um, uh, honor and include as many people from within the congregation and guests as possible uh, during the course of the service. So um, the, um, the... rabbis uh, of the time and um, over time who uh, were experts in, in Jewish law sort of devised a way to kind of split responsibilities. Um, and so they said that the uh, that the blessing can be offered by somebody who other than the one who's reading from the Torah portion, so long as the person who's reading the Torah portion responds amen after the blessing. And when you respond amen to a blessing in, in Judaism, it's as if you had said the blessing yourself. Um, uh, so um, uh, That's the the principle, which, by the way, um, is a very important principle because it means that if you are sitting in services and your Hebrew's not so great, you don't know how to follow along the prayers, whatever, you can kind of, like, let go of some of the, the guilt or discomfort of that and know that your obligation is fulfilled just by saying amen, right? So you can... Participate on the level that you're able to, um, and uh, respond on me. That's why we have a person helping to lead the services. That's what they're called in Hebrew shaliach Sibor, which means the person who delivers the congregation. What does that mean? Delivers the congregation. Delivers the congregation from their obligation to uh, uh, to say the prayers themselves. Right. So the so the person leading. Um, even though Abraham Joshua Heschel, I think in a great essay, one of my favorite Jewish thinkers, says that uh, in modern Judaism uh, there's too much prayer by proxy, which means that uh, you have somebody kind of standing on the beam up praying for you. Um, in a certain sense, from the point of view of Jewish law, it's exactly what's supposed to happen, right? The person who's up there. Praying, in a sense, does it for you to fulfill the obligation for you in case you don't know uh, entirely how to do it yourself. So that's kind of what happens in the Torah service too. Uh, the person says the blessing, which fulfills the obligation of saying the blessing, and the person reading it says, reading the portion, says "Amen," and it's as if they've said the blessing themselves. Um, so the person having the honor is, uh, or saying the blessing, is uh, is is usually celebrated. Um, Uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, first is that it's an honor to be called to the Torah. Um, And so the person having the blessing, saying the blessing is the one that's uh, that's called to the Torah. Um, It's often a person who doesn't have that honor so frequently. Right. someone who has the honor maybe you know, maybe they have it once a week maybe they have it once a month maybe they have it once a year maybe they have it once a lifetime um, so when a new person comes up you're more inclined to kind of uh, have and circumstance um, and to, uh, to celebrate and, and mark that moment um, and uh, the, the third reason uh, which is kind of the, the although that I was giving um, is uh, that uh, the person uh, reading from the Torah is very often um someone who's uh, highly professionalized. Um and uh, and and uh, um I remember with, at my previous congregation um one week uh after uh services um the president who uh gave announcements there uh for a time the, the president doesn't give announcements there anymore the president uh, uh said uh Yasher Koa who congratulated essentially the um the, our ritual director, who's a rabbi who does most of the Torah reading, who did most of the Torah, does their most of the Torah reading, uh, congratulated him on a, on a job well done. Essentially said Yasher koach, and a congregate came out to the president afterwards and said it's inappropriate to uh, say Yasher koach to somebody who's uh, essentially paid to read Torah, right? Uh, right? You, you don't uh, you don't thank professionals for doing the job that they are uh, paid to be doing. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that, but I think that that's part of the impulse behind. Not you know uh, having a whole like to do over the person reading uh, from the Torah because um, it's something that they're trained to do and qualified to do and do uh, with regularity. Um, so I think that that's a, a big part of the reason too. So some of it is ideological and some of it is uh, is practical. That's one common for work when I do at work. You know, that's that's true. Right, that's that's right. Um, uh, <laughs> Congratulations! We haven't fired you. This is <laughs> great. Right, right, right. um, uh, no, I, I think that, that. Listen, I think that that's a, a fair point, and I think that uh, um, you know uh, there is not enough, um, you know, especially in, in, in. I mean, I say this, you know, uh, with a little bit of bias about it, but in, in Jewish professional life, um, the work that uh, um, that Jewish professionals do, uh, and the work that uh, professionals do in other fields, is often, you know, uh, thankless work. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I think that, in my opinion, it's not inappropriate to, uh, to, to thank and congratulate somebody for a job well done if they've done a job well done. Um, uh, if they've done a job well, I guess I should say. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, so now... If a, if, a per, if a professional's reading, you know, seven readings, do you, you know, sing and dance to them after each and every one? You know, probably not, right? But you could say, I should go after to them uh, afterwards, say, we should go after to them afterwards. That's, I think, uh, uh, appropriate. Um, right? So, and I think in the professional world, too, I think that we deserve um, acknowledgement and affirmation when we, when we do a good job. Question. Yeah. Um Yeah? you
1: say the blessing for people that are ill.
0: Uh, So, I I guess there's two answers that I want to give to that question. So the question, in case people didn't hear, is uh, why, when we do the prayer for those who are ill, uh, do we do it with their Hebrew name? Um, So the first answer I want to give is that it doesn't have to be with their Hebrew name, and quite often, you know, people don't know their Hebrew name or uh, are praying for someone uh, for whom they don't know that person's Hebrew name, or praying for somebody who's not Jewish, so therefore wouldn't have a Hebrew name, and uh, and, and and so um, an English name, a French name, whatever, right? Um, all all names are fine, and all names are appropriate. And uh, you know, I often I often say to people, uh, you know, God knows who you are, regardless of what name you're being called. Um, uh, so um, why we do it uh, with with Hebrew names, though, as a as a general desire or a general principle, I think that there are a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that if we do it uh, in the context of, uh, of Jewish services and Jewish prayers, um, there's a, I, it, I think it's an appropriate space for using somebody's uh, Jewish name. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the same reason that we're called to the Torah using our Jewish names and... Uh, um, Uh, so, you know, in that context, um, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like in my fraternity, you know, I became known by my pledge name, you know, and, uh, um, because in certain contexts, there's, there's a, um, the way we're, the way we're called, the way we're identified, um, uh, should match the context, um, and, and it's, and it's meaningful to do so. Um, and the second is, um, this is kind of a Hasidic answer, um, and, uh, um, it doesn't really jive sometimes with my, um. Uh, you know, rationalism, um, but I think that there's a there's a there's a truth to it. So, um, the the Jewish tradition believes that we all have a have a have a of yid. You know, we have a a, a, a Jewish like point inside of us, um, a, a a a spark inside of us that's a uniquely Jewish soul. Um, and what we're praying for in uh, in in, uh, in the Misha is, rufuah ha ve ha guf, healing of body and the healing of spirit. Right? And we want actually those things to uh, be uh, unified in, in our healing. So in a certain sense, we're, we're speaking to a person's soul, uh, not just to their body when, when we're praying for their healing. Um, and uh, um, I, I don't necessarily know if my Jewish soul you know, responds more to the name Michael, more to the name Yerucham. Um, but uh, if, if, if we're thinking about it metaphorically, um, it speaks more to my Jewish soul to be called by my uh, Jewish name, which is also... You know, not coincidentally, why I think um, it's meaningful to be called by your Jewish name when you're called up to the Torah. When I'm when I'm studying Torah, when I was in rabbinical school, most of my teachers call me by my Hebrew name. When I was in um, uh, Jewish day school growing up, and then um, you know later in Hebrew school, um, I, I I liked being called by my Hebrew name. There's something powerful about that. Um, it's something that I think that sadly is uh, is is uh, getting lost in, uh, in our time. I can't tell you how many people I meet that uh, really have no idea what their, um, what their Hebrew name is. And I, I think that there's, uh, there's, there's um, a sadness to that. The, the tradition says that um, uh, one of the very small handful of things that kept the Jewish people together when they were slaves in Egypt um, was that they never lost their Jewish names. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and I fear um, what it means for us to lose our Jewish names in, in our time um, in much the same way that uh, um, the, um, the black power movement in the 1960s um, uh, tried to get uh, African-Americans to s- uh, stop being called by their slave names. Right? Um, so, and I, that resonates with me in some ways. Right? Michael is my slave name. Right? My, my, my princely name is Rucham. Right, and uh, and I think that there's a dignity and a power to that. And would you give that same explanation for our students, if so that they will call my name? Uh, I I I would be happy to. I mean, I, think
1: yeah. it, I agree with you. I think yeah. It's really important, and I love what you said. And I I think if you give the children a reason for
0: appreciating. Yeah, I I I I would be happy to, um, in the right in in the right setting, in the right context. Yeah, I'd be happy. to.
1: Yeah, and particularly my daughter, um, her English name is Sarah, but her Hebrew name is something different. She's not particularly happy about that, but her grandparents asked that, that be her name, and um, it's not that she's not happy about it, but or not not she's not she's ashamed about it, but yeah, I think she needs a little more boosting to be proud of her Hebrew name.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I hear that. I agree with that. And, and um, it's true, right? I mean, you know, um, I think most people um, are challenged by elements of themselves that make them feel um, really different or other, right? Especially young, especially children. Um, you know, there's a there's a strong impulse to kind of, you know, in, in a lot of ways want to be like everybody else. Um, and so when you're called by a strange sounding name, um, uh, it, uh, um you know, it, it, it makes it very difficult. Um, I, I'm very thankful. Uh, um, I think one of the um, great things over the past uh, um, uh, decade that, uh, that, that we've had, one of the, I think, real, um, hopefully, impacts, lasting impacts of uh, um, of the Obama presidency is that you don't need to be named uh, uh, John or James or George uh, to be president of the United States. And you can have a, what he called, in his words, a, a weird name, right? You can have a weird name and still be a great person and uh, and so I'm hoping that, that some of that rubs off um on all segments of our society, including um uh Jewish kids. Barak by the way is a uh, is a good Hebrew name too. That's not what his parents uh, had in mind. But uh in Hebrew it means uh it means uh lightning. Um and also I think that his name actually is supposed to be a derivative of Baruch, which means blessing. Um, so uh, anyway, but uh, um, so I'm hoping that, that there's an impact there, and that uh, and that our kids won't feel as uncomfortable um, about uh, their you know sort of ethnic sounding names. But uh, but I get it; I get why there's discomfort, um, and so it's just a matter of sort of like knowing where where, where that's coming from, and then trying to um, show how beautiful it is to to be unique. Other questions?
2: see more and more instances where shops are being vandalized, shops are being targeted with graffiti. Europe, it's a thousand times worse than it is in the States right now. What do you think as a community we should do for the greater Jewish community, and what do you think there's anything that we should be doing as a community for ourselves, knowing that that real possibility could occur here?
0: So the, the question was about the, um, the apparent rise of anti-Semitism uh, in, recent, uh, in recent days and months. Um, so I was actually just listening on the radio um, to a report about uh, European anti-Semitism. Uh, and, it, and it turns out that um, despite the, um, the, the seeming and somewhat alarming rise in, uh, in anti-Semitism in Europe, um, it, it, uh, it, it turns out that over the past decade, um, anti-Semitic incidents have actually decreased um, across Europe. Um, uh, in, in recent days, it seems like there's been a flare-up, um, but uh, it's unclear at the moment whether the flare-up is actually a flare-up or a um, uh, or, or, or just more televised. Um, and so it's uh, it's it's important to watch. Although although any incidents of anti semitism are extremely troubling. Um, just uh, the other day in Philadelphia, uh, a, a, a kosher butcher was uh, was was vandalized with uh, anti semitic graffiti. Um, so I think that there's um, th- there's really a few things that that we can do. Um, the first is to be vigilant. Um, to, uh, to to note when anti-Semitic incidents occur, and to do what we can to uh, to denounce and speak out against them. To continue um, uh, uh, pushing our represented uh, our, our representatives, our elective officials to uh, to denounce attacks when they occur. Um, to make sure that uh, that that any incidents that do occur are um, are, are isolated incidents by isolated people and not part of um, larger cultural groundswells. Um, and so I think that, that, by and large, that's what we see, are sort of isolated incidents by isolated isolated individuals um, uh, who, are, who are acting, you know, and this is very different um, uh, than much of the rest of Jewish history, right? where anti-Semitic incidents were not isolated incidents by isolated individuals, but were... Um, Perpetrated as uh, as sanctioned acts of the state, right? Um, so you know, pogroms in in Europe were um, were were orchestrated by the states, right? Nazism was orchestrated by the state. Um, uh, so it, for the most part, anti-Semitism that that exists uh, in America and in Europe and in and in other areas of the world today um, um, is, uh, um, is 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 of a much different uh, character for that reason. Yeah. State involvement, there are two developments in Germany, of all places, uh, where any reference to Nazism or any symbolism was by law forbidden. Right. There's now being built a museum to the Nazis. And it's a, a publisher in Germany that's now going to publish my account. Um. Um, so I hadn't heard about those things, uh, so I, I can't really comment on them or not, um, um, although um, uh, I think that actually, um, uh, uh, what I'm going to say, this is one of the idiosyncratic things that, uh, that that Rabbi Knopf is going to say. So I, I was assigned uh, Mein Kampf uh, in college in a, in a political theory class, um, and I'm glad that I was. Um, because I think it's an important book for everybody to read, because um, what you see in that book is that um, uh, many of the um, attempts in our culture to link one political movement or another with Nazism um, are um, are not only uh, a, a, a failure of the collective conversation, but an insult to the memory of the Jews and others who perished in the Holocaust. Because by reading Mein Kampf, you know very clearly that... Uh, that uh, that uh, um, that that Hitler's intentions from the beginning of his political career were very explicit and very clear, and he made uh, uh, no he had no guile about what uh, his vision for Germany was in his rise uh, in, in political leadership, um, and so I think that, that that for at least that reason, um, it's uh, it's uh, important uh, to to sort of uh, be aware of. Um, of, of what he talks about in Mein Kampf, it's also um, uh, important because um, if, if, if what you want, if if you want to be able to um, uh, refute the perverse arguments of uh, of, of the most uh, rabid anti Semites, um, then you need to know what the arguments are, and uh, um, um, and so uh, that that's a case study, um, but just. To the point about Germany. So um, uh, today, um, uh, tens of thousands of German Jews and sympathetic non-Jews in Germany are going to be uh, rallying at the Brandenburg Gate in support of the Jewish community and uh, in support of Israel. And the Chancellor of Germany is going to be speaking at that rally, right? So, so even though there may be disturbing developments, um, uh, you see that the that the um, that the tenor of the culture in Western Europe and in America um, is very different today than it was a generation ago, two generations ago, um, and certainly in earlier periods of Jewish history. Such a thing would have been unthinkable. Um, uh, So I I think that that's important to not be, uh, to to refute anti-Semitism, to object to anti-Semitism, to combat anti-Semitism when we see it, but also at the same time to not be overly alarmist about it um, because uh, the, the era in which we live is just a different era than previous uh, eras of Jewish history. So I think that that's important. Um, it's important though to, um, uh, to, to keep our eye, I think, on, uh, on the news. Um, there are organizations that are on the ground in Europe that are, are working to support, defend and sustain the Jewish community in Europe, so there's a big debate happening now you know, is this the end of European Jewry, right? Should, should, uh, is the seeming rise of anti-Semitism in Europe a sign that Jews should get out of Europe altogether and just be done with it? Um, and of course, you know, uh, places like Israel are, are very strongly making that argument and, and encourages aliyah. Um, but I'm not so sure. I mean, there, there's been um, very wonderful developments among European uh, Judaism over the, over the last uh, decade or two. Um, not the least of which is this year, my rabbinical school, the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, opened up a conservative movement rabbinical school in Germany, um, of all places, uh, that's meant to train European rabbis to serve European Jewish communities. Um, and I think that that's an amazing thing. So um, so in, in, in my view, uh, the answer is not let's get all the Jews out of Europe, but let's uh, help to create stronger European Jewish communities that will, um, I think, in turn help uh, um, push a Europe that is um, more um, uh, uh, sympathetic to um, uh, to the to the needs and concerns of the Jewish community. Know that uh, that anti-Semitism is um, very deeply rooted, especially in European culture, um, uh, and has been for a very long time. So it's going to take a lot of time uh, to turn people's hearts. Um, but I think that uh, by by showing the um, the um, the, um, uh, the the love and the beauty and the vibrancy and openness of which the Jewish community is capable um, is one way of, uh, of of turning hearts. And at the very least, um, uh, we already have on our side um, the, um, uh, the 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 uh, political leadership of most of Europe. Um, and of the United States. I mean, it's uh, it's it's anathema in American politics to say anything that could be remotely construed as anti-Semitism. Right. So that's a that's an important development. That didn't happen uh, even 50 years ago. Right. Um, so so we've made a lot of progress, um, and uh, and it's important not to sort of rest on our laurels about it because that progress was hard earned. We have worked for it. Right. And we should continue working for it. We should continue supporting our federations. We should continue supporting Joint Distribution Committee. We should continue supporting the Anti-Defamation League, um, because these are all very important organizations. Uh, we should continue supporting AIPAC, which uh, um, pushes the American, Jewish, uh, the American political leadership um, to, uh, to continue being strong supporters of Israel across the political spectrum. Um, so all of these are uh, uh, very important organizations and movements that have helped sort of turn the tide of popular um, resentment um, and bias against Jews. Um, So it's important not to kind of just say, okay, well, we've solved the anti-Semitism problem, and now we're good. Clearly, we haven't solved the anti-Semitism problem entirely, but in a lot of very important ways we have, and I think with with more sustained pushes, we can continue working on it. So, um, So that's what I would say, other than when we see incidents of anti-Semitism here or abroad, Um, To the extent that we can do something about it, like supporting, um, uh, sending uh, notes of support to the shopkeeper in uh, in Philadelphia whose uh, store was vandalized, to sending encouraging notes to uh, kids who are called names in school, um, to uh, to pushing school boards for uh, for uh, adopting more um, tolerance education, um, uh, to pushing governments for uh, for for stricter hate crime laws, um, and for bringing uh, offenders to justice at home and abroad, all of these are things that we that we can do. But it's also important to celebrate the successes that we've had, um, and to continue, I think, on a positive trajectory. I wonder if you could help explain something. I've heard considering the status of the
2: what
3: about what I was
2: told. Laws that were given by God and the Mountain, therefore not subject to
0: change.
2: Uh-huh. But the serbian group of rabbis and, and got together and said, okay, this is now the modern times. Kind therefore, of we have to adjust and to go with stuff. So what's your
0: uh, okay, so the question was um uh, uh, who's right? Uh, or, is that am I, am I right about that? Everybody is the question who's right? Orthodox uh, Jews who say the laws of Judaism were given to Moses on Mount Sinai and therefore. <laughs> no, uh, I, I just, I, I'm just standing because I have a little schmook. So, uh, so the question is, um, who's right? Orthodox Jews who say that the laws of, uh, of Judaism were given to Moses on Mount Sinai and therefore are uh, um, immutable and uh, infallible, uh, or conservative Jews who say... The laws that were given to us in Mount Sinai are immutable and infallible, but here and there we can maybe fudge it. Okay. Um, is that fair? Um, okay. Nice um,
2: <sighs> <laughs> <That's awful>. Yeah. <laughs> Time's up, right? Yeah, look at...
0: Look at the, no. So the... Um, so... There are, I think, a couple of parts of that question. Uh, for... Much of Jewish history, it's important to know first that there was no such thing as Orthodox Judaism. There's no such thing as conservative Judaism. There's no such thing as reformed Judaism. Um, There were different uh, streams and sects over the course of Jewish history within Judaism that um, approached uh, the uh, the Torah, the authority of the Torah, um, the nature of God in very different ways, in different periods of Jewish history, in the First Temple period, in the Second Temple period, and so on and so forth. Um, but the movements as we know them, Orthodox conservative reform, um, were a uh, were were entirely a response to uh, modernity in the uh, in really the 18th century, uh, and primarily in Germany, by the way, going back to Germany. Um, and it's also important to note that Orthodox was not the first of those movements. Okay, so uh, there was what we might call traditional Judaism in traditional Jewish communities, which was by and large not ideological, not self-aware, not self-conscious in, in, in the way that a movement is ideological and self-aware and self-conscious. that has a particular uh, a set of values and a, and, and a very conscious approach, right? Traditional Judaism... Um, just kind of was a le- living, breathing of uh, uh, community. So, the Judaism f- was just Judaism, exactly, right? It was Tevya, right? So, <laughs> right, that's um, that's what it was. So, um, so the first ideological movement was Reform Judaism. Okay, it was a direct response to traditional Judaism and modernity to say, okay, you know, uh, we are being emancipated in Europe. Um, We uh, we are being able to be to participate in French society, in German society, in British whatever, right? Um, We're being, but we will never be fully accepted as Frenchmen, as Germans, right? Um, If we don't look and act and talk uh, and think in some ways like our neighbors do, so Reform Judaism was an attempt to reform Judaism to make Judaism a little bit more like, uh, uh, at least on the surface, like Protestant Christianity, right? Like German Protestant Christianity, um, and the ideology that informed that um, was uh, was based on a, an emerging field of uh, uh, biblical scholarship, which is now known as higher criticism. Um, criticism doesn't mean that uh, we're talking about the Torah and saying, oh, I like this part, I don't like this part, right? um, You know, it's not like food criticism um, (laughs) or movie criticism, but higher criticism is an analysis of the the language and development um, of the Bible. Um, And the theory posited by higher criticism, like all scientific fields, which can only study um, what's observable and quantifiable, right? So higher criticism couldn't take because it's a scientific field, it's an academic field. It couldn't take as its premise that um, an unseeable, unknowable being uh, that's Im- not material uh, uh, somehow wrote a book. Right? So it had to assume that a human being, maybe it was Moses, but a human being at the very least wrote, wrote a book. And the higher critics went a little bit further than that. They looked at the text and they said that actually, it looks like several people wrote this book. And it was compiled together because there are very substantial differences in language and in ideology and approach that are reflected in the course of the Bible. We can have a whole class on this if you want. Um, So in the short amount of time we have, it doesn't really suffice to give a lot of examples. But needless to say, there are, I think, plenty plenty of good evidence that they came up with to suggest that the Torah is actually a composite work of multiple different authors. So... Part of the um, uh, uh, academic work that, uh, that, that gave um, influence to the early Reformed thinkers led them to believe, okay, the Torah is a composite text put together by human beings. Jewish history and Jewish tradition, then, is a, um, a, 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 a human creation, right? Um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have value, doesn't mean that it doesn't have holiness, but it's a human creation, and therefore humans can, as they always have, Reform Judaism. We can we can say okay, this part of the Torah was written by a certain author at a certain time that had certain concerns, um, but we don't have those same concerns today, right? So the, one of the classic ones is um, the author that uh, that that put the ban on on pork in the in the Bible was concerned um, about proper um, uh, cooking methods of pork. Right? We don't have those same concerns in the modern period because we know how to cook pork properly and not get people sick. So. Um, that tribal element of Judaism that makes Judaism so other than, uh, than our neighbors, we can, get a, we can do away with that because it's not an important part of Judaism anymore. And what's really the most crucial part of Judaism, the Reform thinkers thought, was um, what they called ethical monotheism. Right? So the belief in one God and the moral imperatives that stem from belief in one God. Right? So um, that are most articulately expressed in the books of the prophets. Now, I say all of that because it's then important to know that Orthodox Judaism, what we now call Orthodox Judaism, emerged as a response to Reform Judaism, right? That said, okay, we have this group of people that are saying it's possible to Reform Judaism. And we're going to take the stance that says it is not possible to reform Judaism. It is against Judaism to reform Judaism. As the Chatzem Sofer said, "Hachadash asur min ha-Torah. New things are forbidden from the Torah. So so they took an ideological stance that said, basically, which was designed to stand in opposition to reform Judaism, to say that uh, the Torah was written by God and is therefore immutable and uh, infallible. the first premise had been generally assumed by uh, Jews throughout history because there hadn't been really an academic study of texts uh, up till that point in Jewish history. The second thing actually was not always agreed upon uh, by Jews throughout history—that it was uh, immutable and infallible. Um, there is uh, plenty of conversation in the Talmud and uh, and uh, late, late ancient and early medieval um, legal literature that uh, that that. Uh, suggests that, um, that the Torah was not viewed as infallible. right? There are plenty of things. So a, a classic example of this is that the Torah says that debts are supposed to be absolved in the sabbatical year. Right? And the rabbis of the Mishnah actually did, uh, did away with that law uh, because they saw that, uh, that it was not being practiced in a way that was in keeping with the higher values of the Torah. Right? So they said, how can it be? Right? So how can it be if the Torah is infallible Right? and is an infallible text by an infallible God, that a principle of it would not be applied in the right way and would actually violate other principles of the Torah. It couldn't be, right? But the rabbis of the Mishnah were very comfortable changing uh, quite radically that, uh, that, that law in the Torah. So the premise of the Orthodox response to reform was a choice, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like, this is very clear from the Jewish tradition, but it was a, an ideological response. There certainly were voices in the Jewish tradition that had said, um, not only does the Torah come from God, but nothing can be changed. There certainly were voices that said that. But by and large, that's not the thrust of the Jewish tradition the um the there's an uh, an evolving understanding of uh, of the Torah's laws over time sometimes laws fell out of practice sometimes laws were um, consciously changed um, sometimes uh, sometimes there's a combination of those things sometimes new practices developed that became crystallized into law um, Simchat Torah is a good example of that, right? Simchat Torah is not talked about in the Torah, but eventually the practice of Simchat Torah became so popular as a custom, it became crystallized into law. Um, And even the Orthodox today celebrate Simchat Torah, right? Um, They have bar and bat mitzvah celebrations, even though that's nowhere to be found in the Torah. So so there's plenty within the Jewish tradition that that demonstrates, um, uh, even uh, from the most traditional perspective, that uh, that Judaism uh, changed and evolved over time, but the Orthodox position, from an ideological standpoint, in standing in contrast to reform, was you can't reform Judaism. Okay. The conservative movement was also, in a lot of senses, an outgrowth of um, of the reform movement. Okay, because the conservative movement. Um, was a uh, was, was uh, from an ideological perspective very much aligned with the reform movement saying that um, Judaism is a, um, a, a, a human creation. the Torah is a human creation. Um, the, acad- the academic research very has very strong evidence for this. Um, it's a historical phenomenon that's why conservative Judaism before it was called conservative was called positive historical Judaism okay so positive historical Judaism means, That uh, Judaism is a historical phenomenon, right? Which means that in history, it was created by human beings and developed over time, right? Which, if you look at Jewish history, that's how it happened. It it developed over time. Whether or not it was created by human beings is a matter of debate. You can't really prove it one way or another. It's a it's a first premise of uh, of academic research, right? So either you believe that God dropped the Torah from the sky, or you don't. um, If you do believe that God dropped the Torah from the sky, you have to still account for some of the things that the academics pointed out in the Torah, which is that it looks like there's different authors. But anyway, so the but the earliest founders of the conservative movement were basically aligned with the reform movement in, in that point of view. right? The Torah was uh, um, uh, written by human beings, maybe inspired by the divine, but written by human beings that Judaism developed over time. Um, where they differed from the reform movement... Was that uh, they weren't so um, uh, uh, they weren't so sure that uh, the um, that the that the tribal elements of Judaism, as the reform movement, the early reform movement, called them, the um, the um, uniquely Jewish components of the Jewish tradition, um, were so disposable, right? Um, and uh, uh, so um, so they said, you know, uh, keeping kosher. Maybe it's the case that the authors of the Torah uh, uh, were concerned about trichinosis, right? Maybe they weren't. In in any event, um, is it an affront to um, a, uh, a, an ethical monotheism to be kosher? No, right? Is it worthwhile, is it valuable for Jews to continue keeping kosher? Yes, right? So the approach of conservative Judaism developed to... Uh, that's why that's why the name makes sense, even though it may make less sense today. And there's often talk about changing the name conservative, but conservative was a response to reform in saying that we should, wherever possible, conserve traditional Judaism. Right? Some places it's important and valuable and worthwhile to make changes, as has always happened in the Jewish tradition. Um, and uh, and in a modern period where there's rapid change and a, and radically changing society in ways that the uh, ancient and medieval uh, leaders of the Jewish community could never have predicted or seen. There are important things to uh, to adapt or, or shift or, uh, um, or even in some cases very strongly change in the Jewish tradition in order to make them um, in order to continue making the tradition relevant and responsive to the needs of the time. So sometimes there are things that, that need to uh, very radically change but by and large we're going to Conserve traditional Judaism wherever and whenever possible. Right. So that's so. So that's the approach of uh, of conservative Judaism. I find that to be a compelling approach for a couple of reasons. The first is um, because I'm I, I I don't really understand how um, how people who who are otherwise um, uh, very highly educated are prepared to kind of set aside. Um, their rational minds when it comes to religion, and I was never really prepared to do that. Right. So, so uh, the, the the notion, the findings of higher criticism of uh, of, of the Bible and um, the, the the studies of the historical development of Judaism, I found personally very compelling um, because, well, I mean, I was a history major in college. I like science, right? I, I, I. I Find um, I find those approaches to studying the phenomena of our world to be compelling approaches, and I'm not prepared to say, okay, those approaches um, are valuable and true in every other area of human existence <coughs> except for religion. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, um, so that's uh, so, so that's a big piece of it. Um, the other is um, I have uh, I, I despite that um, I I think that uh, the Jewish tradition is. Um, as, as received um, and as transmitted over the millennia um, is by and large beautiful, wise, um, and, uh, and, and relevant even in our time. Right? So I'm not prepared as, um, as the early reform movement was to say, okay, the things that kind of look like it's not in keeping with our time will just chuck. Right, which is part of why the Reform Movement today is much more traditional than it was a century ago. Because they have come to realize also that some of the traditional elements of Judaism um, have a lot of power and have a lot of wisdom um, and should be uh, kept around. But at the same time, I think that from within the Jewish tradition, there are, um, there are moral imperatives and there are principles that, uh, that if we were to keep all the laws exactly as they were, a century ago, we would actually have to jettison some of those moral principles that are, I think are embedded in the tradition. So I, 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 for me, a great example of that is, um, is our response to uh, homosexuality. Right? So the conservative movement in 2006 um, uh, had, I think, a very landmark shift uh, in this, and this was the argument. The Jewish tradition from the Talmudic rabbis said that the most important thing uh, in the tradition is human dignity. You can set aside even the most stringent of prohibitions in the Torah if they violate the dictates of human dignity. And since we know that homosexuality is, um, is not a, a conscious choice um, of people, there's nothing a, a, a gay or lesbian person can do to change or repair that part of them, um, and in fact the, the push from religious communities to exclude or to cure uh, homosexuality has caused a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and even a lot of death, Right? that what we need to do is say, okay, the principle of the Jewish tradition is not in line with the practice of the Jewish tradition. The principle is human dignity. The practice is that we exclude gays and lesbians and we tell them that they're sinning and that they're wrong. So we need to change the practice in order to keep the principle right? And that, I think, is very much in keeping with what the Jewish tradition has always done, is responded to the needs of the time, looked at the practice of the time, and said, does that align with the principles of our tradition? Um, Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, In this case, I think that uh, um, uh, I celebrate the movement's decision uh, in that regard, um, because I think that they've brought uh, um, our practice aligned with our most fundamental principles.
3: Yeah, but there is sometimes line
0: between orthodoxy and fanaticism. Yes. Uh I don't I don't see I have this image of a bunch
3: of great bearded rabbis sitting around side, and deciding you can't light
2: a flashlight on shopless
0: because it's called
2: lighting a fire. Right. And I don't see
0: any fire. Right. Uh, so how do you justify I mean modern
3: life is such that a lot of people can't walk the shore anymore. They live
0: in an alertroc Right. Like an right. Uh and uh and you know What's wrong with watching football
3: okay. right.
0: right so, so th- right so so I don't I don't think that that's a yes but I think that that's a, a yes and what I what I'm saying so I think that uh, first of all um, you are beginning to see some of this they're just a little slower to it but even in the Orthodox community especially when it comes to uh, the role of women in religious life uh, in the uh, in uh, so there's, there is in, in many segments of the Orthodox community it, an expansion in the roles of women. Um, there's someone who, uh, who theorized that if the, if the uh, conservative movement did not start ordaining Women rabbis in the 1980s, uh, the Orthodox uh, the Orthodox world would have started doing so uh, very shortly thereafter. Uh, and the only reason that they've held back for so long is because they don't want to be, you know, viewed as conservative. Um, but uh, um, so, but, but so you can see, right? So you you, you see this in some areas of, uh, of the Orthodox world too. There, um, there there's evolution um, and the bringing of. Um, the principles of the Jewish tradition uh, more in line with uh, with the sensibilities of the modern era just takes a little longer. Um, some of the some of the things that I'm talking about, which is why you know um, the classic example is like, what's the difference between conservative reform and Orthodox Judaism? Well, uh, um, Orthodox is crazy, reform is lazy, and conservative is hazy. Um, and uh, um, and so there, so there is um, a, lot of, a lot of room for debate and a lot of gray area in this, uh, uh, in this approach of the conservative movement. So when I say, you know, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, do the principles of our tradition align with the practice? Well, it can be very clear what the practice is or, or has been as we perceived it. But the question of does the principle align with it is a complicated one. Right? So for some people in the conservative movement, the principle of, of, of people being able to come to synagogue on Shabbat um, is more important than the practice of uh, not driving on Shabbat. And so therefore in the 1950s there was a, a position advanced in the move in the conservative movement saying that uh, you're, the coming to synagogue is more important than, uh, than the prohibition of driving. so we're going to for the purposes of driving to synagogue, uh, allow people to drive, um, but there are others who who I think on uh, uh, I think on valid grounds disagreed with that, saying that there's actually another principle at play here, which is the sanctity of the Sabbath, right? And uh, and that may be an overriding principle, then coming together in community, and so therefore the practice aligns very well with the sanctity of the Sabbath. So it's a it's a complicated it's a gray area, which is for me. Um, I think I appreciate that, right? That there's, that there's not, uh, and I think that that's true in the Jewish tradition, broadly speaking, that, that the tradition has very rarely been very definitive in black and white on, uh, on, on most issues, right? I talked about this on Shabbat, that if you look in our classic literature, they're filled with debates and conversation on every issue under the sun. Um, and I think that that's part of why I'm, I don't gravitate to orthodoxy, is that uh, I, I don't see in our tradition... A propensity for clear and easy answers. I think that there's uh, supposed to be a lot of room for debate and conversation. Gary. Just, just, Gary had his hand up for a little I while. Know. Can I add, just yeah. making sure, to what you just said? The
2: argument about what, how dare you not let me drive on Shabbat is a mean spirited argument. Because for those people who keep Shabbat as important, they would live near their synagogue, they would choose to buy a home. Near their synagogue, and not simply say, I live here, how dare you now say I can't commute to my synagogue? The decision process of where they choose to live, Shabbat would have been a strong consideration for that. Right. <laughs> Which which so so then right, so how do you say turning on a flashlight is in how do you say what Jewish laws that would fall in line with? So the 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 the, soup, the, 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 game, the, the rabbis who make these decisions in their communities are generally extremely well educated both in the scientific world as well as the, the Torah world. So they know well, what was the tradition? What was the, the, the root origins of why we're doing certain things? And what applies to this? And that somebody told me, you know, there I had a discussion with a rabbi who is of the, the yeshivish Lakewood community, so he's more from Litvak and not from the Hasidim, even though he looks you wouldn't be able to finish it too. And the Hasidim take this idea that you start the practices. You know, start putting on to fill and start showing up to show. You'll figure out and learn over time why it is that you do that. But the Litvish opinion is: learn what it is that you're doing. If you're not observant, you will grow into it as you learn and understand. And so it's this: take an educated approach because people in in the very traditional, observant, orthodox world who take on stringencies that have no basis in tradition, but because they simply don't understand. They think they have to do these stringencies when there's no basis for them. It. So it's a weird kind of...
0: Sol, yeah, Soloveitchik is, yeah, Liv, he's a brisker, yeah. A brisker, yeah. So he's kind of in line with what you're
1: talking about, and I think um, those,
0: I think it's actually even more, I think like the more modern-day philosophers who give us more of a sense of where we fit into this world compared to some of the older, um, the Torah and so forth, and the practice of the first Well, I mean, so it's, it's it's worth noting, right? So Soloveitchik is a really good example. So uh, um, it was a, Great leader of the Orthodox uh, uh, world, Modern Orthodox uh, Judaism, um, in the 20th century, um, he developed an approach to Orthodoxy that, that it was called Torah Mada, right, which means uh, Torah with uh, with knowledge, Torah with is essentially scientific understanding. So there was a period of time where actually, um, this is why I say that if the conservative movement didn't start ordaining women as rabbis, the Orthodox world might have, um, because uh, there was a a, a period of time where Orthodoxy was kind of moving in this trajectory of uh, of becoming more um, inclusive um, and more um, uh, uh, tolerant of modernity and and modernism. um, And in some ways, um, the... um, Sort of leftward shift of the conservative movement in after in, since since really the the um, rise of the counterculture and feminism and things like that um, and maybe in response to those uh, things in uh, in and of themselves um, there's been sort of a reactionary swing of the orthodox world too um, that that has kind of gravitated toward you know what's the uh, stringency of the day that we can uh, that we can apply to what we're doing despite not really having motivations behind those practices, other than trying to say um, there's, a, there's like a, 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 a frum competition, right? <laughs> right? So who can be the most stringent that uh, we can possibly be? And that has for some time been the tendency of many corners of the orthodox world, probably for the last you know, uh, quarter century or, or more. Um, but there's yet places within, you know there's sort of a schism in orthodoxy. There are very modern orthodox communities that um, I think are much more in line with with uh, with Ravi uh, approach, um, which are the ones that are becoming more um, inclusive and tolerant to uh, to gays and lesbians, which are the ones that um, are becoming uh, expanding roles for, for women, um, that uh, that that are um, trying to navigate this uh, this this line between um, the the need for a um, committed, punctilious observance of things like the Sabbath, but also the realities of modern life like suburban living. So they're grappling with these things too, especially in the uh, liberal sides of the Orthodox world.
3: So um, if we accept that Judaism is an evolving culture, um, evolution occurs in gradual stages, and it occurs in punctated moments where there's sudden change. You pointed out beautifully and masterfully in your sermon on Saturday the transition that occurred following the destruction of the temple. The suffering, the mean for thousands of years, Judaism was a temple cult. And then suddenly, there was no temple. Right? I mean, and, there, and there was massive suffering and, and, and defeat and dispersion. Um, and the rabbis had to totally reinvent what Judaism was. I mean, I think many people argue that in the post-Shoah period, with the return to the state of Israel, we are exactly in a similar situation where, you know, Judaism is in a rapidly changing moment in time. Um, And there is a question about (coughs) Jewish identity, I mean, in the extreme, requires, for example, service of the IDF, right? I mean, that is... You know, there are Israelis who, come, and, and I had this conversation with an Israel, a, a young male Israeli Shaliyah here, mm-hmm. who basically said, what's the future of Judaism in North America? Like, you know, you know people are assimilating, they don't care, the vast majority are not going to come to shul, they're not going to send their kids to religious school, that this is a dying culture, you know, and that the only way that Judaism is going to survive because there are Jews who live in a Jewish country and identify themselves as Israelis as members of a national entity and serve in an army yeah. and participate in a culture, you know that is by designation, by definition, right. Jewish.
0: Right. Okay. So, so there's a couple of things. First, Al, Gary points out a, a really major one that I overlooked of a, of a place where. Uh, uh, Judaism before there was a conservative movement made a very radical change which is um, uh, there was a, a temple with sacrifices and then all of a sudden there wasn't anymore. Right? So that's um, so a major one. So uh, you point out a really good uh, uh, um, you make a really good point Gary that, um, uh, that there's a divide in the Jewish world. And I was just reading an essay uh, last night by a, a, a great uh, um, a contemporary voice um, in the, the Jewish American Jewish community named uh, Rabbi Sid Schwartz. Um, wrote a book called Jewish Megatrends, or, or edited a book called Jewish Megatrends, which I commend to you. It's a really, it's a good collection of essays, so you can sort of like you know, pick it up and read it here and there. Um, and he argues that there are really kind of uh, two kind of Jews now, and it mainly falls along generational lines. Uh, tribal Jews and Covenantal Jews. Okay? Tribal Jews... Um, tend to be um, uh, the, uh, the the baby boom generation and up tend to be more more tribal Jews, and I guess I would say Israeli Jews tend to be more tribal Jews, right? There's a there's a, a sense of sort of inborn Jewish identity that responds to things like anti-Semitism, threats to the state of Israel, etc., and, and Jewish identity is formed based on those things. And covenantal Jews um, are are those who kind of emerge in an area in, in an era um, post 1967. Right, Post-Holocaust, um, where there is, a, you know, substantially less anti-Semitism, um, where where the threats to Israel um, in an era where you know Israel has a nuclear arsenal are are not the same as they were in 1967, right? And so these Jews don't have the same kind of tribal affiliation with Judaism um, as their parents or grandparents did, and their approach to Judaism um, is largely, if anything, covenantal, which means that. Um, Their their attraction to Judaism is only based on whether it's spiritually satisfying or whether there's wisdom in it. And so, um, covenantal Jews, and those of us, even if we're mainly tribal Jews who have a covenantal sort of sensibility, and in America I think a lot of us do, um, don't really understand Israeli Jews in in a lot of ways because um, those Israeli Jews who say that I'm Jewish enough, just by living in Israel, just by being born Jewish parents, and just by serving in the army, we would say that by all the metrics that we understand to determine like how Jewish somebody is, you don't really you're like off the map. Right? You're, you're what if it weren't for the fact that you're living in Israel, we would call you a. Locks Jew, right? We would call you Jew. That. So um, um <laughs> <a subpoena> Jew. <laughs> a Jew, exactly. You're a falafel Jew. So um, uh, um so it it it, uh, it invites this very uh I think uh, interesting question of uh, of of what constitutes uh, what constitutes identity. Um and uh, and one of the I think um so Part of the issue, by the way, um, is you know how we study and how we ask the question, right? So, um, so how do you how do you um, you know because in order to kind of study how people see Jewish identity, you have to think of how you want to phrase the questions that you're asking about what constitutes Jewish identity. So, most demographic studies have looked at this issue of Jewish identity on a number of levels. Right. So, the question of Jewish identity is: Do you marry Jews? Do you observe X, Y, or Z Jewish practice? Do you belong to synagogues? And it turns out that there are, the Pew study showed this, that uh, there are people who very strongly and passionately identify as Jews, that are proud of being Jews, who don't really hit any of those markers of Jewish identity that we've come to identify. So now the question that places like, uh, organizations like CLAW, which is trying to do a different kind of study in the American Jewish community, we are trying to ask is, um, not how Jewish are you, but how do you do Jewish, Right? How, how significant is, uh, is uh, uh, or how meaningful is Judaism in your life, and how do you measure the meaning of Judaism in your life? So that, I think, is actually a better question um, than, uh, than how Jewish are you. Because if you, if you ask the question of how Jewish are you, then you get this divide. Okay, well, I think that you're Jewish enough if you, are, if you live in Israel and join the army. Well, I disagree. I think you're not Jewish enough if you don't light Shabbos candles, Right. But if you say, how do you do Jewish? Then you take as a given, when a person says, I'm proud to be a Jew and I strongly identify as a Jew, that they're telling the truth when they say that. And you're honoring the fact that they say that. And you're studying uh, more openly what it looks like to be proud to be Jewish. Right? And it means different things to different people.
3: Rabbi, I guess the question comes then, how do you make the synagogue the center of Jewish life not the JCC,
0: the of yeah. um, So I want to hold off on that question because before we get into a new line of questioning, um, did you have a, question, a different uh, we'll, question? I'll serve it up for another day. Oh, okay, all right. All right, so this will be the last question, because um, yeah. I want to be conscious of people's time. So the question is, how do we make the, the, the synagogue the center of Jewish life and not the JCC? Part of the answer I want to give, and I know that this is... Um, yeah, you know, I, I I regret that I'm going to say this when the president of our synagogue is in the room, you know. but uh, um, and and the chair of the search committee that brought me here uh, um, is uh, is is I think that um, I think that we are in an era where um, there are going to be multiple centers of Jewish life, and that is not only an okay thing but a desirable thing um, because we can actually. There was a period of time where um, it was um, by default and by design that the synagogue was going to be the center of Jewish life, in part because um, uh, 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 the synagogue, Judaism, was sort of like the civil religion of American Jews, and it was um, part of the cultural environment to be involved in a civil religion and be a religious community. You couldn't be a respectable member of society. Um, unless you belong to a religious organization, a church, or something like that. Um, And and also, um, Jews couldn't uh, be involved in other kinds of uh, uh, civil organizations or uh, um, uh, country clubs and things like that. So synagogues um, uh, took on um, this sort of uh, uh, one-size-fits-all approach because in order to be respectable you needed to belong to a religious community and also you couldn't go to the country club. So the synagogues capitalized on that and said, well we can be all of those things. We can be the country club, we can be the gym, we can be the pool, we can be the basketball court, and we can be the religious community. Now we won't be too religious because you know we don't want to turn people away. We're not communists, right? but, um, uh, but uh, um, so there's been a sea change uh, in, in uh, um, American society since then. You don't have to belong to a church to be a respectable member of society anymore. You might need to belong to a church or something or something like that to become president, but that's basically it, um, which is which is part of why you see such a radical decline. I mean, you think the problems are bad in the Jewish community right now, um, you'd be glad that you're not a mainline Protestant right? Um, because those churches are closing left, right, and center. Um, so I think that, um, that the, the, the notion that today we can have multiple centers of Jewish life is a good thing because it means that JCCs can focus on the business of being JCCs, um, which they do very well, right? Communal programming, gym pool, that's great. They should do it, and we should support them because I, I like their gym. They have the TVs on the, uh, on the treadmill. That's great. I don't want my synagogue to be that. I want my synagogue to be a place... Of, of of spiritual renewal. I want my synagogue to be a place of uh, deep and profound Jewish wisdom and learning. I want my synagogue to be a place that inspires um, world transformation and is a beacon for social justice. That's what the synagogue is supposed to be. That's what the synagogue can be. And that's why I'm, I, I think that it's okay We say, okay, this is a center of Jewish life, and what we do in this center of Jewish life is this. Right? We can focus like a laser on the things and make those things really good and really compelling. And I think that by doing that um, and by saying we, we don't need to be all things to all people um, because there are other places where, where, where Jews, um, specifically but other people generally, can get um, you know, the, the sorts of things that the synagogue in the 1950s and 60s was offering. Um, what we can say is what we do really well. Our area of expertise, what we know is wisdom. What we know is spiritual. Is, uh, is, is spiritual connection. What we know is um, the, the, the ability of community to come together for, for joys and sadnesses, right, in ways that you can't get at a community center. And in some ways you can, but there's a, there's a unique way that a synagogue does that work, right, and, um, and, and that, uh, that uh, the synagogue as a religious center can provide um, religious guidance and inspiration for, um, for social justice and world repair, and that's what we can do, and that's what we should be doing. And so if we like put aside you know, our desire to like have everybody come and use our pool and say we're going to focus on the things that we know how to do and should be doing and can do really well, um, that, I think, is... Uh, it may not make the synagogue the center, the center of Jewish life anymore, but I think it's a recipe for synagogues um, like ours Flourishing in ways that they've struggled to over the past couple of decades because um, there hasn't been enough responsiveness to this changed reality. Um, so that's what I would have to say about that, but I think it's a, um, an important and, and maybe a longer conversation.